to you. It's great to see you today. I'm glad you're here and uh, grateful to get to worship with you. If you have your Bible with you, would you please open to the book of Micah? And if you are new with us or maybe you forgot your Bible, let me encourage you to open up the Pew Bible in front of you. It's the black one. And I'll give you a shortcut because Micah can be a little tricky to find. But in the Pew Bible, uh, you'll find Micah chapter 4 on page 825. I want to encourage you to keep your Bible uh, easily accessible the whole time. We'll refer back to it multiple times. And uh, maybe encourage you to take a few notes this morning if you'd like. We're picking up again our sermon series in the book of Micah. Last two Sundays, we hit the pause button to... Uh, walk with Jesus into Jerusalem on uh, his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And then last Sunday, we were at the tomb, uh, and Jesus met us there as well. And uh, now we pick up our study in Micah, and and we'll be in Micah until we finish. Now, if you're going to build something, it's helpful if you have a picture of what that thing is that you're building. Uh, It it comes in handy for a number of reasons, but if if you don't have the final picture, then your bookshelf might turn into a a bike ramp, or your your loaf of sourdough bread might just look like a human head. There's any number of things that can go wrong if you don't know where you're going and what your destination is. And that picture of the final product is especially important when you run into difficulties in the process of the making. So, Uh, Once upon a time, we bought our girls a trampoline, and uh, I had a picture of what that trampoline was going to look like when I was done assembling it. Uh, Put it together myself, one of the greatest feats of construction since the building of the pyramids, I'm convinced of it, and as I strung roughly 38,000 springs from tarp to frame, losing every fingerprint I'd ever had, plus all the hair on the back of my knuckles. I just knew, I had this picture in my head. One, here's what the trampoline will look like when it's done. Uh, And then two, here's the picture of my children, happy, bouncing, as uh, they sing their dad's praises for the good thing that he has done for them here. I had that picture in mind, and so that picture gave me endurance as I strung the springs and put that thing together. Now, that sort of vision, that end-of-the-road vision, is sort of like what a ministry of an Old Testament prophet was like, sort of what Micah's ministry was like. From time to time, these prophets of God, people like Micah, they would describe God's ultimate future for His people. That ultimate future, that final future, was filled with peace and contentment and life. And it would be absent of injustice and war and every scary thing. And those glimpses of concrete, final, future things were intended to fuel the believer's perseverance and faithfulness to God in the present day, especially in the face of suffering. They lived their lives with a view of the end in mind. And Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 is one of these future-focused prophecies. Micah spoke these words of hope during a truly horrible time for God's people. 
First of all, uh, there were innocent people who were suffering at the hands of powerful people. We read all about it in chapter 3. You can read about it as well at the beginning of chapter 2. So there's problems on the inside of Judah. But also there are problems on the outside. At the point in time when Micah speaks these words of hope, there's an enemy nation, an Assyrian army that's going town by town inflicting horrors untold on God's people. So uh, there is crisis from within God's people. There is crisis outside of God's people. And that had to leave God's people wondering, is there going to be any future for us? What's going to happen to us? If we've got problems inside and outside, what are the days to come going to be like? Well, into that sorrow and suffering comes the word of the Lord through Micah. And God gives his people hope through a vision of where history is headed. It's as if Micah said to his people, put down your fears and your panic and your doubts because we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That future is your future if the Lord is your Lord. That hope is your hope if you'll believe the words of the prophet today. Now, I'm going to give you a glimpse into the future today. You're going to leave here this morning with every doubt removed about where history is headed. It's as if Micah is speaking directly to you and he is saying, put down your fears and your panic and your doubts because we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So my goal today is to give you a vision of our future with God that will inspire your faithfulness today. And our passage gives us three descriptions of the future of God's people. Follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you, sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem." So what does the future hold for God's people? It's a future not just for Micah's original audience, but 
for this modern audience as well. And Micah gives us three descriptions of the future. The first description is this. It's a future of God-given flourishing. When we think about where history is headed, what's that forever day going to be like? This first paragraph, verses 1 through 4, gives us a picture of God-given flourishing. So the first four verses of this chapter describe for us what the future of non-Jewish peoples will be like, or the nations. You might remember God's promise to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis that through him all nations on earth would be blessed. Well, these four verses describe the fulfillment of that promise. Now, Micah chapter 4 begins with a timestamp. In verse 1, he says, in the last days. These last days are God's forever days. They are our days with him in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the period of time when God has set everything right. These are glorious days, these last days, these forever days. And Micah describes them in four different ways here in these verses. First of all, he says those forever days are a time when God reigns supreme in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains. So God has a house on a mountain on top of mountains, and it will be raised above the hills. So this language about the elevation of God's house is a statement about the supremacy of God above every man-made idol, every man-made scheme of religion. To say that God's house is the highest place is to say His name is supreme. You might remember from your Old Testament history that high places, hills, were where shrines to false gods were built. Altars to these man-made gods were put on these high places. Well, here Micah has said God's place is the highest of the high places. Everything else fades away. There's no competitors. He is God alone. He also tells us that people will stream to it. God's house is up. It's a mountain on top of mountains, and people will stream. They'll have to stream up to it. I, I love this water language, but have you ever seen a river that streams up? Doesn't happen. So just in the, in the word picture itself, Micah is telling us that this is a supernatural work. That all these people coming to the house of God on the mountain, on top of mountains, they're streaming up. God is doing this supernatural work, bringing the nations to himself. And don't forget what we just read here at the end of chapter 3. You remember how Micah described the fate of Jerusalem and the temple at the end of chapter 3. He said, Zion, that's the name of the holy mountain. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins. And the temple's mountain will be a high thicket. But God's judgment on the sins of the unfaithful won't stop the fulfillment of his promises to the faithful. Even though the end of chapter 3 comes with this scene of utter destruction. Chapter 4 opens with this future where God has put everything right. 
desolate circumstances are no challenge to the accomplishment of God's will. So whether it's bringing a kingdom out of ruins or a people from afar or a dead man to life or salvation to a sinner, God brings beauty from ashes. That future with him is where God reigns supreme. Another picture of that God-given flourishing in verse 2, it's a time when all people will praise God. So he tells us in verse 2, many nations will come. So this tells us that this language is not about Israel. This is about Gentile peoples. These are the great unwashed masses coming to Israel's God. It's an intentional and a massive turning. They want God. The nations want Him. They say to each other, He will teach us about His ways. So they want to be taught the words of God. So that we may walk in His paths. Like this is true transformation. They want to be taught the words of God so they can live in His ways. They're not going to live in the ways of their old gods. They're not going to heed the words of their old gods. All that is dead. It is refuse. It is left behind. We're going to the house of the Lord to hear His word and to live in His ways. These are Yahweh's people now. They belong to no other God. So God's word goes out and the nations come in. Micah tells us that God's word goes out from Zion, from Jerusalem. This is an emphatic statement. The good word does not go out from Nineveh or Babylon or or any other religious center. That good word comes out from the house of the Lord. It's from that former heap of ruins that this life-changing revelation is going to come. And so, so Micah wants you to have this grand picture of the vastness of God's kingdom, that all nations belong to it. All people bear the name of the Lord. It, several years ago, my wife and I uh, used to live in Mississippi. Our, 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 two of our daughters were born in Mississippi. And I remember vividly one day we walked into this home furnishing store in Mississippi, and there was a framed picture for sale, large framed picture of Jesus, it's Mississippi, selling a picture of Jesus, and this was an artist depiction of Jesus walking in the middle of all of these magnolia trees, uh, wrapped in an American flag. If Micah 4-2 were a person... It would dry heave at such a puny depiction of Jesus. Because Micah 4.2 makes it clear that Jesus doesn't get one flag. He gets every flag. All nations will come to him. All people will praise God in that last day, that forever future of our flourishing. A third depiction of this uh, God-given flourishing in verse 3, all people are going to live in peace. So in verse 3, Micah tells us, God will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. Uh, What Micah describes here is God fulfilling a role as judge. 
He's the judge over nations. They're going to bring their problems, have their problems. God's going to set it right. It's good news for God's people when God is the judge of nations. And as a result of God's judgment, something amazing happens. With no more war, no more conflict, there's no need for weapons. Look at what he said there in verse 3. They will beat their swords into plows, their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation. They will never again train for war. So swords and spears represent the whole arsenal of war material. Everything previously intended for war will instead be used for what? For farming. Look, farming is the wave of the future. If you want to know what heaven's going to be like, you might need to take a trip to Kansas. I'm just telling you, no more weapons. Okay, tanks will be turned into tractors, bombers turned into bailers, carriers turned into combines. And it's important to note that, that this scene happens on planet Earth. This is not some distant, far-off heaven. Peoples and nations, swords and spears, plows and pruning knives are the stuff of this world. God will set things right here. It's also important to note the order in which these things happen. God's judgment comes first, and it's then followed by peace. God judges, peace follows. Politicians won't make this happen. Kings cannot decree it. God is the peacemaker. And then verse 4 gives us one more characteristic of this future flourishing of God's people. He tells us this is when all people are going to be content. Everyone's praising God. Everyone's living in peace. Everyone is content. Verse 4, each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. So that language of grapevine and fig tree is used to describe people who control their own lives without foreign interference. They're able to cultivate the land that God has given to them. The land thieves of chapter 2 are no more. The people devourers of chapter 3 are no more. And instead, people can live content with the things God has provided for them. The vine and the fig provide shade as well as fruit. And both of those things take time to develop. So the enjoyment of this peace is a long-term prospect. And there will be no one to frighten him. I don't know why that line just hit me in the face. There will be no one to frighten What will it be like to live in a day and forever days without fear? There's an assurance here that no one can or will destroy or reverse this peace. And can you imagine what a treasure this promise must be to so many of Christ's sheep who live in places under extreme duress, places like North Korea or Indonesia or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or dozens of other places. The world is full of terror and hatred and butchering for the people of Jesus. But God promises the day will come when he will grant full and final peace. That's where history is headed. Every time you look at the events of the world around you and you think, this must be it. This is the end. The last days are here. You're right. But do you know where these things are headed? Where will these days take us? They will take us to a place 
where God's people flourish forever. The Lord has promised it, so count on it. What's the future like for God's people? It's a future of God-given flourishing. The second thing Micah tells us is that that future, it's a future where sinners are restored. So the second paragraph of our passage, verses 6 to 8, tells us that the future is a place where sinners are restored. First paragraph spoke of non-Jewish believers. This second paragraph describes the future of God's people, God's Jewish people. And think about this from the perspective of Micah's audience. Micah just told his fellow Jews that God would make a people out of those who were not his people. And so that had to leave Micah's audience wondering, well, what about us? Is God done with us? Well, this is God's promise to them. Verse 6, on that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. So this second paragraph begins with the same timestamp as the first paragraph. Verse 1 starts within the last days. Verse 6, on that day. That day is the same day as the verses 1 through 4 day. And so on those last days, God's going to assemble the lame, gather the scattered that he has injured or those he has brought disaster on. Isn't that interesting? That God identifies himself as the one who has injured these people that he's going to assemble and gather. In what way did he injure them? Well, he judged them for their sin. That judgment, we know historically what that looks like, is enemy nations coming in, taking control of this territory, bringing utter destruction, and then exiling God's people from their home property, their home worship, their home language, their home culture and customs, and sending them to far-off lands. Now, before your modern sensibilities lead you to think of these people as victims, you have to remember how they got there. Over and over again, they rebuffed the grace of God. This didn't happen in a moment. It didn't happen without warning. They chose their idols. Therefore, they chose this destruction. They're not victims in this story. They received the punishment they deserved for their repeated, ongoing, violent idolatry against God. Again, that idolatry is described in chapters 2 and 3, and it was horrific. These aren't just people seeking for truth in other ways. They are destroying each other. So they, they received the punishment that they deserved. But how amazing is the grace of God that God will assemble and gather these former idolaters. He took the initiative with grace. His gathering is not the response to their explicit return. He doesn't say, I will gather you when you come looking for me and you come to your senses and you put aside your idols. He puts the return in motion himself. It's all of his grace. Did this really happen in history, that God gathered those he scattered? Absolutely it happened. We just read it in Ezra chapter 8. Aren't you glad we read all of Ezra chapter 8 this morning? So that when we get to this verse, you would have names and details and know, yeah, God really did fulfill this promise to bring his people back. 
but it's not fulfilled in total in that gathering. This is a depiction of the great gathering of God as he brings his people in from every nation on earth, restoring them from their sin, making them his people once again. What will God do with his people once he brings them in? Verse 7, he says, I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forever. So those who were lame and scattered, he's going to make them into a remnant. That word remnant, it means these are going to be people who hold on to faith. They will survive. They will endure. And they're going to become a strong nation. More, they're going to do more than just survive, more than just make it. They're going to thrive under the Lord's rule forever and ever. And then verse 8, he says, You watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion. He's talked to the people. Now he talks to the city. You fortified hill of daughter Zion. The former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. So not only will God's glory come to his scattered people, but also to the city of ruins as well. Jerusalem, that pile of rubble, will have its former rule and sovereignty returned to it. And we've already seen this prophecy fulfilled in part. Did you know that? In fact, just two weeks ago, we saw this prophecy fulfilled in Matthew chapter 21 when Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey, glory, rule, sovereignty returned to Jerusalem. And he didn't go into that city to sit on a throne. He went into that city to die on a cross. This is how God's glory returns to his people. It ought to astound us that God takes these broken, idolatrous people and produces from them a remnant of faithful people who thrive in the new Jerusalem. He doesn't rescue them because they ask him to, nor has anything necessarily changed in terms of the punishment they deserve. They still deserve punishment. However, they belong to the God who is unlike any God invented by men. This God loves to rescue sinners. God does not have any disposable people. We have such a hard time believing in the grace of God. I mean, we'll sing about it and say it's amazing, but I'm not sure we really understand how amazing it is that God makes the way for idolatrous, sinful people to know salvation. The gospel is not good news without grace. God came to us not because we are well, but because we need a doctor for our souls. He didn't come to call the upright, but sinners, and your name is in that lot. This is why grace is amazing and the gospel is good news. And so our future with God is a future of God-given flourishing. It's a future where sinners are restored. And finally, Micah tells us it's a future that inspires present faithfulness. In verse 5, our future is a future that inspires present-day faithfulness. Look at verse 5. Though all the peoples walk in the name of their own gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, we've come at this passage out of order. We should do 1 through 4 and then 5 and then 6 through 8. That's not what we're doing. Verse 5 is different from these two paragraphs. Here's how it's different. 
Paragraph 1, paragraph 2 are future tense. But verse 5 is present day. Verses 1 through 4, here's what God's future flourishing for His people is like. 6 to 8, here's what God's restoration and grace to His people is like. Verse 5, in light of these things, here's how we will live today. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. How can the nations that Micah spoke to in verses 1 to 4 know that they have a place in the peaceful, flourishing kingdom of God? It's by walking in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And how can the Jews whom Micah spoke to in verses 6 to 8 know that they will be among that remnant who will enjoy the glory of the restored Jerusalem forever? It's by walking in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This vision of the future is meant to inspire present-day faithfulness. To get them through every trial, every hardship, every difficulty, every enemy invasion. And there is a lot of difficulty to come between Micah's day and this future day. But in every hardship, this vision of the future is meant to inspire present-day faithfulness. It meant that for them, it means it for us as well. Now we live in a time and a place where people all around us walk in the name of their own gods. We live among a most religious people, super spiritual. They believe in supernatural, believe in things beyond themselves. Even if it's just the cult of culture, it's still a religion unto itself that you would live by certain rules, be found moral and upstanding by certain rules, even if those rules are ever-shifting but still, we live in a place where people live and walk in the name of their own gods. And so the pressure on you, as a follower of Jesus, can be truly intense. Now, although you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in the faith this morning, you may be a lone Christian the other six days of the week. And that's why you need to make Micah 4-5 your confession. You need to commit it to memory. You need it in your back pocket on a regular basis to pull out and encourage your heart, to guide your steps when every voice around you runs counter to the voice of Christ, when pressures around you call you foolish, backwoods, hillbilly, what, Neanderthal, because you believe these words. When those voices sound in your ears, you have to hear the confession of God's people. That though all the peoples walk in the name of their own gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So pray this on your way to school. Pray it in the hallway between classes. Pray it on your way to work. Pray it at your dinner table. Proclaim it with your church family. And then live it. Micah calls us to live the life of the next age in the ruins of the present one. So we must walk in the name of our God while we await the end of days. So Micah has given us a glimpse into the future this morning. That future is absolutely certain. He's not saying there's a possibility this is where things might go. He says this is what the creator of all things has decreed. 
This is where history is going. It's a future for God's people full of God-given flourishing. It's a future where sinners are restored. It's a future that inspires present faithfulness. And so I, I wonder, where do you find yourself in this passage? If I were to give you a pen and say, circle the picture of you in verses 1 to 8, what would you circle? Is there one paragraph where you land, one place where you'd say, this is a reflection of me? I wonder if you might find yourself in the second paragraph in verses 6 to 8. Maybe you are someone who is suffering under the consequences of sin. You're convinced that God's done with you. You you don't even know why you're here today. What a privilege to be a person who comes from verses 6 to 8. Because isn't that where we see the unstoppable grace of God? And a reminder that God does not throw away people. That He moves towards us in our brokenness. He comes to us with grace to restore us and to set our feet forever. Today, the joy of your salvation can return to you if you'll walk in the name of your Lord. The word of the Lord has gone out to you today by His grace, and He invites you to come home. I wonder if maybe you find yourself in verses 1 to 4. It's possible that could be you in those verses, and especially if you're not a follower of Jesus You absolutely are in verses 1 to 4. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to talk to you for just a moment. I said at the very beginning of my sermon that I was going to tell you the future. And so let me do that now. Let me put on my great Karnak hat. Wonderful old reference. Thank you very much. And I want you to give me your hand. I'm going to tell you your future by looking at your hand. It's really clear to me. I mean, my mind is flooded with images and truth, things that I know are real, just by looking at your hand. Look, your hand tells me that you are valuable and you are precious because you're made, this hand is made in the image of God. And he made this hand and intended it for good. That was, that was his plan for this hand. Good things would come as a result of it. Um, but this hand uh, has not done what it was created for. It has sinned against its creator. This hand should be clean, but it's not. It's filthy by sin. This hand also tells me that your life is finite. There's an end coming for you. There's a day when The body attached to this hand will die. And on that day, you will face judgment from the creator of this hand. There will be consequences for the sin that that this hand committed. But the one who came to us, the one who, who made us, the one in whose image this hand is made, he took on flesh like this. He became like us in order to remove the sin that, and the punishment that this hand deserves. And so we knew him as Jesus. He's fully God and fully man. He's the creator who became like the created for a time. And taking on human flesh, he died in your place for your sin. 
the punishment that this hand deserves, he took it on himself, his own hand pierced by nails, as he died in your place for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead, still bearing the marks of the punishment he bore for you. And his promise is that if you will turn from your gods, if you will walk in the name of the Lord your God, every blessing, every eternal life will be yours. That's his promise. Now, now if you don't do that, if you hear this truth and you realize, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, then this hand has a certain fate that it cannot escape. But God in His grace has spoken to you. The word of the Lord has come to you through His prophet Micah today to invite you to come home, to bring you back to Him so that you would be cleaned and forgiven and given eternal life. He will clean your hand. He will hold it forever. He will be your father. You will be His child. Your future is certain. We will all stand before God in judgment. It's only by faith in Christ that you will be saved. So you have to decide, who will you serve? The gods of our neighbors and nation or the God who holds the future? As for me and my family, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your word out to us. Thank you for coming to us in your grace. Thank you for bringing us home. Thank you for forgiving us of our sin. Thank you for restoring us. Thank you for adding us to that remnant, that strong nation. Thank you that you have done this for sinners like us. We can't read Micah 4, 1 to 8 and walk away impressed with ourselves, but only in awe of you. And so, Lord, bring times of refreshing this morning to your children who are under the weight of the consequences of sin, whose hearts have strayed. Lord, let them know that you're not done with them, but may they rest in your grace today as you restore them. And God, I pray that you would bring new life to the one today who heard your word and is turning to you, making Jesus the Lord of their life. Father, thank you for your free gift of salvation that comes through faith, not by merit, not by performance, but by grace and grace alone. Lord, let that happen today as your good word falls in good soil and you bring your harvest in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, John.